You're listening to the I'm Thinking of Having a Baby podcast. I'm Hannah Erickson, New Zealand registered dietitian and owner of Oh Goodness Nutrition, an online consultancy taking the confusion out of eating well for conception, pregnancy and post-baby. If you're thinking of conceiving, say in the next 12 months, I've created a special resource for you. Whether you believe me or not, getting the right type and amounts of different foods is never more critical than in the lead up to conception and pregnancy. So you can download your free checklist to ensure that you're on the right track. Um, the link is in the show notes. All right, let's get into today's episode. Yay. Um, welcome to the I'm Thinking of Having a Baby podcast. Today on the show, we have very special, well, very smart guest with us, uh, Professor Greg Anderson. Greg, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do and what interests you in this particular area? Sure. Kia ora, Hannah and everyone. So I'm a, a lecturer and a professor at the University of Otago. Uh, my department is the Department of Anatomy, but I'm also part of a, a cluster of researchers and we call ourselves the Centre for Neuroendocrinology. And a neuroendocrinologist is someone who's interested in both in the brain, that's the neuro part, and hormones, that's the endocrine part, and how they interact together. So um, my teaching is usually in the area of reproduction and some neuroscience. And my research is all about how the brain influences fertility and how it influences stress and actually how those two things interact together. I mean, I've been fascinated by reproduction for pretty much forever. You know, my early studies when I was doing my PhD were all based on around um, the way animals do reproduction on a seasonal basis. And you would think that New Ze- a country like New Zealand might be interested in seasonal patterns of reproduction because of our agricultural focus, but there wasn't actually so much funding for that. So I moved on to other things and things like how nutrition affects fertility and then um, how stress affects fertility. And of course, this is something that is really, really pertinent to modern society, both the nutrition thing and the stress thing. Um, and a large number of couples can't conceive and stress may be a factor. It's hard to know because we all feel stressed, don't we? And um, and nutrition may be a factor in many cases as well. So it was something that um, was had real implications for um, all my friends even, you know. Yeah, definitely. It's, I'm sure at parties you get talked up all the time. Oh, tell me more. What do you do? About half the people say that and the other people just get awkwarded out when I tell them I study fertility and oh, they really? um, yeah, look, look over my shoulder for someone else to talk to. So. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Well, what do we know already about the link between stress and fertility? Surprisingly, not much. <clears throat> we know quite a bit from... Um, animal model. So when I say an animal model, um, someone might choose a a laboratory mouse because actually its reproductive system and its stress system is pretty similar to ours. And so you can do studies using those animals in a much more controlled fashion than you could do with people. Even there though, we don't know that much about, I mean, it must be the brain that's controlling these things. And I would liken it to having a map of a city that just shows the main highways in and out of the city, but doesn't really show how any of the the smaller roads link up because we don't really know about those connections in the brain. So if you take the analogy, um, that's like us knowing about the 
major neuronal and hormonal pathways that control, that link stress and fertility, but not really knowing about the, the nuances, the smaller connections that, um, that are really important. And so there's a lot that we don't know. But we know that stress hormones um, suppress fertility. So cortisol is the one that most people have heard of. Mm-hmm. And cortisol, we need it. It goes up during times of acute stress and we need it to divert our energy away from the things that we don't need on the spur of the moment and divert them to our muscles and dilate our eyes and all the things we need to do to deal with short-term stress. So that's cortisol is a good thing, but when it's elevated long-term with the kind of stress that we often find ourselves faced with in modern society, that's a bad thing. Um, uh, It's not healthy to have chronically elevated cortisol. And one of the consequences of it is it suppresses our reproductive system, suppresses reproductive hormones. Um, And again, there's a quite a lot we don't know about um, what cells it's acting on in the brain to do that, but we certainly know that it's a factor. So that's one of the things that's involved. It's probably not the only way that um, stress affects reproduction. And so my research is interested in some of the interconnections between cells in the brain that that seem to um, quite quickly suppress reproduction and whether they do so long-term or not is still a bit of an open question. Could you go into a bit more detail about what your research group has discovered in terms of these groups of, of cells? Yeah. So... Um, we started off knowing about the cells in the brain that control reproduction. They're called GNRH neurons, gonadotrophin-releasing hormone neurons, and they've been known about for decades. And so we know that they are the master controllers of reproduction. People think that you know the ovaries and testicles control reproduction. Well, for someone who comes at this from the point of view of a neuroendocrinologist, it's it's the brain and it's these GNRH neurons in the brain that control reproduction. So we knew that already. And we also knew that um, stress could influence it through hormones like cortisol and so on, but we didn't know the link between those things. And so I guess the big discovery that our group has made is we've discovered a population of cells. And if you go back to the analogy I made before, you could think of it as um, some of the um, smaller streets on a city map that might connect two big arterial routes. Um, And so we've discovered a population of neurons, there might be a few thousand of them at the most, and they seem to be the link between stress, possibly cortisol or possibly some other sort of stress, and they seem to deliver that information to the GNRH neurons. So that's like the link between stress and infertility. And we were able to figure that out um, by either exciting those neurons. And when we did that, um, reproductive hormones would be suppressed, or we could um, silence those neurons using clever tools we have in the lab. And that would allow reproduction to continue even in the face of a stress. So um, they they seem to be really important and to the extent that totally surprised us. They, they have a totally forgettable name. It's called RFRP neurons, RFA mode related peptide neurons. Um, but their function is pretty important. We, we had known for a while that they might have something to do with reproduction. They might have something to do with stress, but it wasn't until we made the link between the, the, the fact that they're delivering the stress message to the reproductive centers of the brain that the picture really started to come together. 
That is so cool because you hear anecdotally, right, stories of um, people trying to conceive, couples trying to conceive, and it's the moment they relax or they go on holiday uh, yeah. that they are able to, to get pregnant. So you're saying that there's a specific cluster of cells in the brain that seem to yeah. control the response to stress and whether you can get yeah that's right and so uh, you know i've heard all the anecdotes the same as you and everyone else have and i'm sure that many of them are true in fact often it's um people that after decades they might accept the fact that they're infertile they may have even adopted some kids and then you know in, in their 40s out, out pops a kid so um that's the kind of anecdote that has made a lot of people think that when you eventually stop stressing about it, um, sometimes fertility can improve. And so knowing about these neurons in the brain, discovering them, discover their function, it, it may eventually lead to a therapy, which you know we could actually target these in some way, and we could talk about that later. But I think just in the first instance, it's probably helpful, I hope it's helpful for people just to understand that there is a physical basis for infertility and um, and even the stress effects on infertility. I mean, some people you know, might say, oh, it's all in your head. Well, I guess we're saying it is in a way, but yeah. it, it, there are actually physical neurons which control this. And I suspect that might be some comfort for people that are in the midst of the distress of infertility to be able to pinpoint, mm. this is the physical cause of this. I'm not just making it up. So right. I, I hope that, you know, being able to pinpoint these things actually helps people in that sense. Well, I tell you what is unhelpful is when you're trying to have a baby and someone says to you, oh, just relax. <laughs> I know, I know. And that, I find that difficult you know, with my message as well, because of course that's the truth, but you can't just tell people to relax, can you? No. And it's also unhelpful to um, point to someone who might be doing some heroically stressful job and still has four kids, you know, so, yeah. you know, different and yeah that's very true so in terms of what we might do is I you just touched on something now about the difference between people so how someone can be stressed and still very fertile and another finds that stress might be standing in the way of them conceiving why is that so we don't know but knowing about this group of cells in the brain these RFRP cells it may be that some people have overactive RFRP cells or, or the receptor which those cells act on further downstream might be overactive. And that's where our studies need to go now to, to see. Um, and if, then if we could know that and diagnose it, then um, this might be the future of targeted therapies where we say, well, you know, your problem is this and we know how to deal with that now. We're talking in ten years' time, of course. Um, you know what it's like talking to scientists. They, they, um, the the solution was always ten years away, isn't it? But <laughs> really, I think we can see a pathway as to where that might go now. And That's I think very it's quite cool. exciting. And you're clearly a part of that pathway, the the research that you do. So, in terms of what we can do about this knowledge, you're saying that in the future, don't know when, uh, but there'll be some development of drugs potentially. We'd like to think so. I mean, we can't see any side effects, and obviously that's part of what the study would be over the next 10 years, but we can't see any unwanted side effects of 
if, if it turns out that these cells are overactive in some people and that's causing stress-induced infertility, just blocking them would be all good. Um, it would improve fertility. Um, it might even help alleviate the stress as well, which would be a wonderful consequence. So it could be all good. And we have got as far as um, making a, a compound ourselves that seems to block the effects of this drug. Um, but the problem, like, like is so often the case when we're um, trying to develop therapies um, that act in the brain, just getting it into the brain is an enormous problem. Um, it's, it's one thing to get a drug into the bloodstream, but to do um, to actually get it from the bloodstream to the brain, that's where 999 out of every thousand drugs fall by the wayside. So um, it's a big problem. That's amazing. So cool. So it's not just... Um, the drugs, although that's a long way away, what can people who are presently experiencing stress and suspect that stress might be a factor in their infertility, what can they do? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question because this is something we can do right now. And, you know, I suspect that people probably know the things they can do, but until they have come to have kids, maybe they've just soldiered on and they think that it's not that important but here, if you know, couples are listening to this and they uh, have been trying to have kids for a year or so and it's not working and they think that stress might be a factor, now's the important time to make some changes. And it, you know, maybe it's worth doing now, whereas it you didn't couldn't be bothered doing it before. So the kind of things that people should be considering, and, and you can find all these things online, but you could get active if you're not active enough. Some people, of course, are too active and they're, you know, like take, for example, the extreme example of marathon runners and, and ballet dancers and so on. Their problem might be that they're too lean. They don't have enough body fat to support reproduction. But that's an extreme case. Most of us need to get more active and that would be a good way of reducing our stress. So that's one thing you can do. Uh, you can take a serious look at your diet. And, and I'm preaching to the choir here, I know, but... Um, <laughs> It's a good chance to say, um, am I am I eating too much junk food, maybe a little too much red meat, too much alcohol, all of those things, and you could have a more balanced diet with more fresh vegetables and regular meals and, and those sorts of things. For some people, meditation or some sort of wellness course might be important, and everybody's different on this one, and, you know, so for myself, I've tried to do some medication and I feel pretty self-conscious when I do it, but I know what I do like to do is spend time alone. So I think it's about knowing yourself and knowing you might not call it meditation, but what works for you in terms of that kind of thing where you can actually de-stress your mind. Another really big one, which I think everyone could do if they thought it was important enough is improve your sleep habits, go to bed at a reasonable hour and get up, uh, you know, if your problem is going to bed late and sleeping in late, well, sort that out. And so, you know, these are things which, if it was important enough to us, we could we could work on that one. And I know it's difficult for people who do shift work and all that sort of thing. But for most of us, that is something we could really work on. Hmm. And you may this may be a chance to take up something new, like learn to strum the guitar or knit or, you know, take out a hobby in the workshop 
or something which actually forces you away from work. And it seems paradoxical when we know we don't have enough time to get the work done and everything, but actually spending some time where you force yourself to put down the laptop um, and do something else, it actually probably won't affect your productivity that much at all, maybe make it better. And it will certainly de-stress your mind. So these are the kind of things which I think people have heard all these answers before, but um, maybe this situation is important enough to drive us to actually do some of them. Absolutely. I like what you've said. Yes, people have heard these before and they could just wash over. But I think in a situation like reproduction, where it's out of your control, you can't really put your finger on it and say, right, I'm going to get pregnant this month and it's going to you know, be smooth sailing. Here you've listed things that people can control. They can mm. um, practice the habit of sleeping better and, and learning how to eat well and exercising and making that a part of their life. Yeah. And I think, I really think um, just knowing yourself as well is important. So for some people, educating themselves about reproduction might be important. So um, women might use uh, a cycle, a menstrual cycle tracking app. And some of those have got, um, not, they not only track the cycle, but they also give really interesting information as well. For other people, that might be a form of obsession and just mm-hmm. the just compound the message that I'm not getting pregnant, I'm not getting pregnant. So people are different in these things. And what is great for one person might not be for the next. And, you know, I can imagine scenarios where people are just obsessing online about every bit of information they can about fertility. Um, and it, it itself, I mean, that is the huge um, paradox of, of stress-induced infertility is that the infertility itself adds to the stress and it becomes a vicious cycle. So, Now, I saw in your research as well that there is a difference in how these neurons act in men and women. Could you elaborate on the difference, please? Yeah. We noticed that um, they were particularly effective in suppressing the reproductive hormone secretions in women, and the effect was a bit less obvious in males. We need to do more research on that. We have to understand that these things evolve for a reason, and sure, they might go wrong in some people, that the system might be overactive in some people, and that's not a good thing, but they were evolved for a reason, and it could well be that the reason was evolved to intentionally suppress our fertility in times of stress. Let's say famine, that's sort of a nutritional stress, but what about wartime? It may be um, a good thing to suppress fertility in those times, and, and for obvious reasons. And it may be more important to suppress fertility in women in in those times, because certainly traditionally women have borne the brunt of the energy cost of um, bearing and rearing kids. And so it could be particularly important to to do that for women. And there's another thing why, why we think it might be more important in women. And that's even if the system that we've discovered is not chronically overactive so it's not overactive all the time it's just occasionally in women um, it could suppress fertility at the time of ovulation so it could just come down to half a day of, of these cells being overactive and that could be enough to prevent ovulation from happening for that month and there goes a whole month in men fertility Um, really comes down to sperm production, which is a very slow, long-term process. It takes a couple of months. And so it's hard to imagine um, that a short period of stress 
that causes these cells to become overactive would make much difference in the long-term process of sperm production. So that might be why it hits women harder. There's some speculation on my part there, but those seem like fairly likely reasons to me. Mm. So what you're saying is that if her stress is heightened around the time of ovulation, it's possible that she won't ovulate. It's entirely possible, yeah. So although in, in some respects, the lead up to ovulation happens over the the entire first half of the cycle so follicles which contain the eggs are growing over the two weeks leading up to ovulation the hormonal events that really trigger ovulation they happen over a matter of hours Mm -hmm. and there's a remarkable change in the brain um, the the way that estrogen acts in the brain is totally turned on its head and that comes down to a period of hours just before ovulation and that event can be disrupted by cortisol Wow. And I'm so conscious as I'm saying this that it, it just feels like um, you know, you have the potential to put the blame on people, you know, open too many emails at mid-cycle and the ovulation doesn't happen and oh, it was my fault. Not my intention at all. I'm just trying to explain mechanisms. Mm, mm, definitely. I find it fascinating that um the woman's body is so remarkable and that we undergo such change in very yeah. discrete periods of time. Um, and that's normal for us. I think it's just amazing. Yeah. So maybe yep. your, your message is, hey, women need more self-care, <laughs> um, more facials, more massages. It, it could be that um, a, a, an awareness about mid-cycle stress, it might be that um, you schedule less meetings at that time, um, you know, especially ones that you know are going to be stressful. Perhaps if, mm. if you mm. have enough control over your life, you could say for this week, um, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to put that off till the last half of the cycle. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the impact of stress on a developing baby? So say conceptions happen, do you, you sort of come across how stress can impact the embryo yep. or fetus? Yep. Uh, it's not uh, a specialist area of mine. So once pregnancy is established, and let's say a month or so into pregnancy, I think the developing embryo and the developing fetus is probably reasonably resistant to stress. Mm. Now, having said that, there's an increasing interest in um, developmental origins of disease. Um, And so it may well be that the way we are as adults, let's say we're prone to obesity or diabetes, was programmed Um, in early life, even during fetal life. And stress could be one of those things. Mm. But we don't know very much about that. And certainly in terms of losing a pregnancy, uh, I think that the fetus is relatively resistant to that. Once once that egg has been fertilized and it's implanted in the womb, and after a couple of weeks after that, um, then it's relatively resilient to stress, as far as we know for Mm. sure. there is also some suggestions that even um, exposure to these stress hormones, cortisol, in the time of birth may also program babies in a certain way. And again, I hate saying that out loud because who's not stressed during birth? You know, it's just, <laughs> once again, let's put the blame on the mother. But um, these, there is not much known about that. And um, I, and I think the, the bigger emphasis really should be on stress affecting conception so um, this is people 
trying to conceive in the first place. And, and usually once pregnancy is established, um, it, it's fairly resilient to those sorts of things. <laughs>